0: Hi, I'm Mark. I'm a Director of Product Management at Morningstar, and I'm joined by Shani, a Senior Investment Specialist. And we're going to talk about all share investing today. But before we begin, quick note that the information in this podcast is general nature- Does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So, Shawnee, we're talking about share investing. Maybe a logical place to start is why you should invest in stocks.
1: Yeah, a lot of people who haven't invested in stocks before and are scared to take the plunge often view it as comparable to gambling. We hope by the end of this, it becomes evident that stocks are a vehicle which enables you to reach your financial goals and has historically been one of the asset classes with high returns over the long term. We're going to talk a little bit about research conducted by Credit Suisse in the London Business School, in which they found the Aussie stock market has actually delivered the strongest return of the 29 countries in the study. Since 1900, the ASX has returned 6.5% annually, and that's inflation adjusted. Even more impressively, this return was achieved with relatively low volatility, and volatility is the degree of variation of prices. So, in simple terms, how much the prices jump around. Australia's was the lowest, second only to Canada. Credit Suisse has also said that the impact of franking credits was not taken into account in this study, so the real return for investors is even higher than that rate of 6.5%, which is quoted in the study.
0: And the same study speaks of the success of shares in general. Shares remain the best long-run financial investment. Over the last 120 years, global equities have provided an annualized return after inflation of 5.2%. We go back to just looking at the Aussie stock market since 1900. Australian shares have had roughly two negative years for every 10 years in total, but there are no negative returns over any rolling 20-year periods.
1: So this is all historical. Let's talk about what has led to us being where we are now and the current market conditions. So the global financial crisis happened in 2008, where markets drastically fell. This fall, though, we've had a strong bull market.
0: And a bull market is a market where prices rise or are expected to rise. The opposite of this, of course, is a bear market. So we've seen this bull market where markets have been running and rising since the recovery after the GFC. We've had a couple of sharp drops last year in December and in March this year when stock markets dropped over 30%. We've had a climb since then, but we're finding a lot of new players in the market, a lot of retail investors. So investors like you and me. Entering the market, and this isn't surprising when you look at the impact that COVID has had on how and where we are spending our money, Australia's household savings rate has more than tripled, from close to 6% to 19.8%. This means that there's a lot of us with money sitting in the bank, where it's earning close to no interest because we're in a really low interest rate environment. Now, the savings rate has increased because people are definitely still keeping money in the bank for a rainy day. Obviously, the outlook is so uncertain with coronavirus, but there are many people who have sat on the sidelines who have entered the stock market recently. They've got spare cash and the banks' or fixed income isn't giving them what they want anymore.
1: And that brings us to inflation. This is one of the main reasons why you want to invest in stocks. Inflation is a reduction of purchasing power of your money. The common anecdote that often goes with this is milk, so the price of milk in the 60s. In the 60s, you wouldn't have to pay $2 a litre for milk. So if your money is in the bank, most of the rates that you would be getting would be less than inflation. You're losing the purchasing power of your money every day that it's there. And this makes a really large impact. We've always thought that the banks were safe money. It's seen as risk-free. But we think the biggest risk with keeping your money in the bank is that you wouldn't reach your financial goals.
0: And shares are an investment that can combat the impact of inflation. Over the long term, we've spoken about how the real return of shares, so the amount that you will receive after inflation has been taken into account is 6.5%. That's since 1900. And we recognize that investors won't stay in the market for over 120 years, but like we mentioned before, take any rolling 20-year period of the Aussie market and there are no negative returns. This is not to say that there are no risks when investing in the share market, But long-term investing has rewarded many investors who have made prudent investing decisions.
1: So while we're talking about investing decisions, I might speak a little bit about what made me take the plunge into share investing. Part of the reason why we wanted to put this topic together was because I have so many friends or people that I meet who don't have the basic understanding of the risk and rewards of share investing. The understanding of risk is so overweight, but the concept of reward just isn't there. So I think increasing understanding will help people build the confidence they need to take that plunge, to use vehicles other than cash to help them reach their goals. Before I worked at Morningstar, I worked for a large asset manager, and part of my role was working with financial advisors who invested in the company's funds. This asset manager that I worked at is quite storied. It's been around for a long while, and its relationships with advisors has, have been long as well. And because of this, I saw countless examples of 15 to 20-year-old accounts which had multiples of the original investment, just by investing in shares through an investment product like a managed fund. All of these investors, due to con- contributions over the years and getting started earlier, got the reward of a really comfortable retirement. I really wanted to have that outcome, maybe a little earlier if I could, so I started putting money away to meet the minimum investment for these managed funds. So my first investment into the stock market was through a managed fund, and I knew that I wanted to get started early. Time in the market often means that it's easier to reach your goals, and this is because of compounding returns. Compounding is earning a return on your return, so it's kind of like a snowball. Say you want to make a million dollars by the age of 65, with the market doing 7% a year. When you're 25 years old, you only need to save $405 a month. When you get to 55 years old, you need to save $5,486 per month to make it. That's 13 and a half times more per month because you're starting later in life. You have less of a time frame to invest, so less months to make the investment, but also have less time to earn returns and for your returns to compound. I've been really lucky that I work in the industry, so my eyes have been opened early, but this still applies to most people my age who will see these rewards because they have been making investments in the share market through their super, still saving for their retirement, just in a different tax environment. So, Mark, I might ask the same question of you. What was your first investment in shares?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of a first investment, I think I did get lucky that my parents did give me shares as birthday presents and Christmas presents, obviously very small amounts when I was younger. So I think that helped a lot around education and understanding what I I was doing you know, at least to a little bit of a degree. But then in terms of really first investment started when I got out of uni and, you know, a lot of this happened just because I got a financial calculator and I was screwing around with the financial calculator and just realized the same thing that you were talking about. You realize it in a different way the impact of compounding over long time periods. But I just sort of realized it from this financial calculator, plugging in different numbers and seeing what it would grow to when I was older. And I think that really encouraged me to get as much money into the market as possible when I was young. So that was, uh, that's really where I got started. So- We need to get into our actual topic now, Shawnee. right? Okay. Okay. So why don't we talk about what a stock, a share, equity, all the different terms we use for what it actually is.
1: All right. So when we're talking about stocks, it really means that we're going to be speaking about businesses and companies. A company is an organization that sells goods or services in order to make money. There are small companies like the corner shop in your neighborhood with just a couple of employees. And there are large companies like Walmart in the US that has 2.2 million employees. Mark, did you ever go to Walmart when you are back in the U.S.?
0: I mean, I occasionally went to Walmart. So a lot of uh, a lot of WalMarts are more in rural areas, okay. which is not where I lived. Right. But you can get everything there. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, it is exciting to walk around and look at it.
1: Okay. So companies can have different ownership structures. Some companies are owned by a single person or a small group of business partners. Some companies have millions of anonymous owners. What every company has in common is that at some point they will need to make money in order to run their business. A small neighborhood business might need money to buy some inventory or pay rent for a storefront or money to pay employees. In order to get this money, a small business might borrow from friends and family, take a loan from a bank, or potentially take on a partner.
0: And when businesses get to a certain size, they often decide that they need to find a new source for money in order to expand. To do that, they turn to investors not investors that they know like friends and family, but anonymous investors around the world. They trade small ownership portions of the company, or a share of the company, for investor cash. This is done either through an initial public offering when a company transitions from a private to public company, or through a secondary offering where additional ownership stakes are sold after the company is already public.
1: So the important lesson here is that what you are buying when you are buying a share or when you're buying an ETF or fund that invests in shares is that you have a stake in the company. You are an owner of the company. So now we understand what a share is, simply an ownership share of a company. But what is the stock market?
0: Yeah. So the stock market is what you hear about all the time on the news. You often hear whether the stock market has risen or fallen overnight and predictions of what will happen today. So what is the stock market and how does that relate to owning a company Well, the stock market is simply a marketplace, a place where people can go and buy and sell shares of companies. It's basically like a giant auction. If you're comparing it to an auction where you're bidding to buy a house, it's like you putting your hand up and offering a million bucks for a rundown studio in the middle of Sydney and the owner agreeing to sell if they think that price is fair. This is pretty much the exact same thing that happens in the stock market just on a lot larger scale, where there are sometimes millions of buyers and sellers all proposing different prices to buy and sell pieces of a company.
1: All these buyers and sellers are doing is agreeing on a price to conduct transactions. If there are more buyers and sellers, the price will go up because at a higher price, other people are likely to sell. If there are more sellers than buyers, then the price will go down. All of these different buyers and sellers have different motivations. Some need money, some have to invest money, some are rational, and some irrational. Some are driven by valuations and some are driven by greed and fear. Now, the important thing to remember is that every time you think it is a smart move to buy a share or sell a share on the stock market, somebody out there is making the exact opposite decision and you don't know why they are doing it or what their motivation is.
0: Yeah. So what does the stock market have to do with companies? Not very much. The purpose of the stock market is to make sure that there is an active marketplace so that people can buy and sell shares is done by setting a price, but that price may or may not have anything to do with the company.
2: Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly Global Best Ideas explore our ETF model portfolios, plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX listed stocks, And stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes.
1: So, Mark, now that we've covered off on what a stock is and what the stock market is, maybe you could explain a little bit about why you would take the plunge and invest in shares.
0: Let's go back to the small business example to talk about where the value of a company comes from. So, let's say you wanted to buy the corner store in your neighborhood. How would you decide how much to pay? Well, You would look at the inventory of the company. You would see if it owned the building it was in. You would see if it had any debt. So that is looking at the assets of the company, anything that it owns, and the liabilities of the company, anything it owes. But you're also buying a business that is expected to make money into the future. And as the owner of the company, those future profits come to you. So you'd want to try to figure that out. And we have to understand that the future is unknowable. The corner store could do great or it could go out of business. So if you wanted to estimate what the store was going to make in the future, you would first look to the past, because that can be an indication of what will happen in the future. Are there loyal customers? How much did they buy?
1: Then you would want to analyse some other factors. Can the customers still afford to buy the products? Are their tastes changing? Is the competition changing? Is a new calls opening? Basically, are there any variables that will impact what it will make in the future?
0: So what you're trying to do is estimate the amount of money that the company will make in the future, because as the owner, of course, that money has value to you. So there are two underlying drivers of the value of the corner store, the assets that the company has minus the liabilities and the future earnings of that business. The same is true about large companies where you may own a small portion of that company. No matter how small your ownership stake, you still own part of that company and you get a share in both the net assets and the future earnings of that company. So now you understand the value of the company that you own as an investor. The question is how much you are supposed to pay for those two elements of value. That is what is happening every day on the stock market as people are trying to figure out what companies will make in the future, and they're deciding how much to pay for what they make. We can cover that in a future episode.
1: The question is how that company's performance translates into returns that you get, which is why you want to invest in this first place. Share market returns come from three sources. They come from dividends, they come from earnings growth, and they come from changes in what people are willing to pay for those earnings. So let's break down each of those elements.
0: Dividends are the portion of company profits that are paid to you as a shareholder. This is just money that shows up in your investment account. You can do what you want with it, spend it, reinvest it, save it. And we'll cover dividends in our next chat. The important thing is that they are a a source of return for you as an investor.
1: And then there's earnings growth. You're willing to pay a certain amount for the current profits of a company. If those profits grow in the future, it stands to reason that somebody else will want to pay a certain amount for those profits. So if the company makes more money, it stands to reason that someone will be willing to pay more for those increased earnings.
0: And what people are willing to pay for the company – we just mentioned that people are willing to pay a certain amount for the net assets of a company and the profits that a company generates. The amount that they pay can and does change over time. The changes in what people are willing to pay are often represented as multiples of some measure. They can be multiples of the net assets of a company, what the company has minus what it's owe, what it owes, which is called book value. They can be multiples of earnings that the company generates, which is called the price to earnings ratio they mean multiples of cash the company generates the price to cash flow ratios we'll go into those specific ratios in a future podcast but the important idea is to make sure that these is to make sure you understand that these valuation ratios will change over time that they will change because of company specific issue if it's less expected future growth more risk to the business model etc they will change because of overall confidence in the economy and the perceptions of risk They'll change because of the level of interest rates, all sorts of different factors.
1: So we have these three factors, and they have been studied over time to see the contributions to historic returns. A study by Kalamos Wealth Management looked at historic returns in the US. 63% of returns came from earnings growth, 28% came from dividend payments, and 9% came from changes in valuation.
0: So let's focus on valuation for a bit. While changes in valuation are the smallest of the three factors that contribute to equity returns, they're also an important one. The overall economic environment contributes to how much someone will be willing to pay for a company. Let's talk a little bit about what's happened since the 1980s and how it led us to today. Since the 1980s, global interest rates have come down significantly. In the U.S., the Fed funds rate peaked at 20% in 1981, and in Australia, people are still paying 17.5% for mortgages by the end of the decade.
1: And interest rates have fallen pretty steadily. We won't go exactly into what this means, but I think everyone listening will have seen the effect of low interest rates. It means that mortgages are cheap, and it means that you're earning almost nothing from your bank account. So this large-scale drop in interest rates has had a couple of impacts. It's influenced investor behavior, and it's influenced the prices of assets, everything from houses to bonds to stocks.
0: Let's start with investor behavior. As anyone with a bank account realizes, you are earning almost nothing to keep your money in the bank. So naturally, people have looked for different ways to get returns, including reinvesting in stocks, particularly dividend-paying stocks. We'll cover dividends in our next episode, but the one thing to add is that having a certain amount of cash is important. Part of successful long-term investing is to have an emergency fund. The emergency fund is supposed to cover you when something unexpected happens, which is an inevitable factor of life. That way, you don't have to dip into your investment accounts to cover these expenses. But particularly if you're young, it makes sense to get your non-emergency fund assets out of the bank and actually invest them. So there's been a definite impact on investor behaviors. More people have turned to riskier assets. All right, so we've covered off why you'd invest in shares, Shani how do you actually invest in shares?
1: Yeah. So there are different ways to invest in shares. Most people are familiar with the traditional way to invest, which is just purchasing purchasing shares through the stock market. However, there are other ways to get access to shares. We brushed past this before, but I think it's important to speak about this because shares aren't for everyone or for every part of your portfolio. And what I mean by this is that getting access to shares can sometimes be unfeasible for those with low balances because they aren't able to properly diversify or they don't have enough of a balance for brokerage to make sense.
0: Enter funds and ETFs. So ETFs are vehicles that are baskets of stocks and managed funds are vehicles where you pool your funds with other investors to purchase assets. ETFs can be accessed the same way that shares are. You purchase them through a broker. Broker is a person, or more likely now a firm, that lets you transact shares. They get a commission fee, which is called a brokerage fee. And it can be a dollar fee or a percentage-based fee.
1: A managed fund is a little different. The most popular way to purchase managed funds is through a fund manager directly. So a company that professionally manages your money for you. We'll talk about funds in a later episode, but both funds and ETFs offer you instant diversification instead of putting all your eggs in one basket with one share. A classic example that we can give is that if you wanted exposure to Amazon, Amazon at the moment one Amazon share is about $4,500 and you are literally investing in one share. You can invest a further $500 to bring your balance up to 5000 and that is a minimum for a Vanguard International Shares Fund with almost 2,000 holdings, including Amazon. And that's just a small example of the different avenues where you can get access to shares. And while we're speaking about funds, we can speak about an investment that most working-aged Australians have, which is super. So most Working-age Aussies do have a super balance, and if you haven't made a purposeful decision to change it, at least part of that super balance would be invested in shares. Before you even make a trade with your savings, you've already got exposure to the stock market through your super. And not just that, most default super funds have around 60% of their funds in shares. So if you're scared to take the plunge, in most instances, you already have. You probably got thousands of dollars in shares that are earmarked for your retirement.
0: All right, so let's review the three things that we learned today and why it matters. So the first thing is owning a share means owning a part of a business, and there's a big difference between shares and the stock market. You buy shares to participate in the long-term economic growth of the economy and to participate in capitalism. And there are three main drivers of investing returns, earnings growth, dividends, and changes in valuation level.
1: And how does knowing these things make you a better investor? The hope is that you take more of a long-term approach and that you're able to react in a more rational way. We know that the stock market and price changes reflect the whim of millions of investors, often fueled by greed and fear, while what you're buying is the long-term prospects of a company. And we've got a few resources to further your understanding. So as part of Morningstar Investor, which you can take a free four-week trial for if you're not already a subscriber, we've got the Morningstar Guide to Share Investing, a guide that says what's on the box. It'll run through the fundamentals of share investing. Morningstar Guide to Income Investing. We've got two income guides, one that Mark has written and one that I've written. Mark's written a general guide to income investing, so being able to invest in shares that provide dividends. And I've written a guide on income investing in downturns and volatility, so being able to find sustainable companies that will survive and provide income through tough times. Then we have the Morningstar Guide to Selecting Investments. It's our newest guide and it's a guide that walks through the process of understanding what different types of investment products there are and why you would choose each one, and the circumstances for which they may suit. So questions like, should I invest in direct shares or manage funds or ETFs? Should I invest in an active or passive strategy? Just the thought process behind filling your portfolio with the right investment for you.
0: And then, of course, you can certainly read some books on investing as well. There are countless ones out there. A couple that we like are Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits by Philip Fisher. So Philip Fisher is uh writing he's a growth manager he's writing about growth investing we've got the little book of common sense investing by John Bogle so if you don't know who John Bogle is he was the founder of Vanguard and he talks about passive investing and he was the first professional manager to really make this a thing so passive investing is when you're not actively picking the assets that you're following in, instead, you're just following a market index. So an example of this is there's an index that follows the ASX 200, the top 200 shares in the Aussie investor share market. And then perhaps the most famous book of all, The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. So it is considered one of the most important books on investing ever written. And it really looks at value investing, but it has a lot of key fundamental things in it. So thank you guys very much for listening. We appreciate it. We would love a um, rating and a comment in our podcast app or in your podcast app. And also, you can email me. My email address is in the show notes. Any
2: advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited, without reference to your financial objectives, situations, or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.